Well, our focus this evening is on the topic again of sexual purity. We are in this thematic study of the book of Proverbs. And as we noted last week when we began this two-part study of the topic of purity, that Proverbs devotes an unusual amount of emphasis to this particular topic. In fact, as various commentators have noted, that the topic of sexual purity receives more emphasis and more extended instruction than any other topic in all of the book of Proverbs. And this makes sense because even as we know from experience, but also as what has been communicated, even the Word of God, that the issue of sexual purity has an enormous influence on a man's life, on his future success. Some of you know that from personal experience, the, the impact of, of a life that, uh, that was lived in folly in your younger years and the impact that has even on you to this day. Some of you are from families where you had a dad who, who was immoral and the impact that that immorality had on you as a son and the whole family, on your mother, on your sisters and brothers The issue of sexual purity, unlike any other issue, impacts a man's life and future success unlike any others. And because the book of Proverbs is a book devoted to training young men in particular, but all men, training them in the ways of success in a treacherous world, in the ways of success according to God, it is only natural that such an enormous amount of material in this book would be devoted to to the topic of sexual purity. Well, by way of review of of last week, let me briefly summarize the four principles that we studied, and we'll pick it up then on number five. But the first four were these. Number one, Proverbs teaches us that to preserve purity, to fight for purity, number one, we must keep our ears attentive to instruction. We must keep our ears attentive to instruction. If we do not recognize the deficiency that we have, especially in the realm of truth and right thinking, if we lean on our own understanding, if we walk according to what seems best to us, we can be guaranteed a failure. And so the first step, the foundational step, is, is that we must keep our ears attentive to instruction. We must cultivate a hunger for truth. We must recognize that we need God's word, that word directly given to us on the pages of Scripture, but also mediated to us through God's people, through wise counselors who will apply that word to our lives. If we're serious about purity, it means we will have a special interest here. This is where it begins. Number two, we will fight for purity, we'll preserve purity by acknowledging the power of temptation. Solomon, as he instructed his son, didn't sugarcoat things and say, you know, so, you know son, it's, it's no big deal. It's just a small thing. No, Solomon, as he instructed his son, alerted his son to the reality of, of the allure of this kind of temptation. And he talked about the five senses and how all of those senses are particularly involved in this kind of, of temptation. And so Solomon was careful to alert his son and to say, son, recognize the power of this temptation. And when we recognize how this temptation works, we are then able to set watchmen on the gates to where this 
temptation makes its advance. Number three, the third principle that we looked at in our fight for purity is this. We, we fight for purity and we preserve purity by contemplating the hideousness of sin. And so on the one hand, while Solomon points to the power of the harlot and, and the power of sexual temptation, on the other hand, he also informs his son that this kind of sin is particularly hideous. And so at special points along the way, he, he kind of uncovers the facade and allows his son to see the ugliness of this particular sin, the ugliness of the harlot, the stupidity, the foolishness, the idiocy of anyone who would get connected with her. He points to the ugliness of this sin. And then number four, as we fight for purity and preserve purity in our lives, we must remember the consequences of failure. It is a good thing for us to take regular moments to think about what happens when we fail. It's not good just to think about this failure once it already arrives. No, it is actually a a beneficial protection for us ahead of time to look into the future and to think hypothetically that if I don't watch my life and guard it diligently using the means that God has given me, then my life will end up like that. And perhaps this is the the, the only beneficial thing of, of hearing of the scandals, even in the church. When you hear of these scandals, we don't step back and scoff and mock. We realize that this is important for me because if it, is not, if it were not for God's grace in my life and his empowerment, I could be that person very easily and I could lose everything. I could lose my family. I could lose all my wealth. I could lose my friends, my status, my reputation, my career, everything. Everything is on the line. And we must remember this regular. And this is what Solomon warned his son about. He said to his son, son, look at what happens. It will cost you severely. Those are the first four. And now we turn to the second half of these principles, the second four. Number five, number five. We fight for purity by maintaining our distance from temptation's sources. We fight for purity by maintaining our distance from temptation's sources. Now, this is a very important one. So out of the next four, I'm going to spend most of my time on this one. This is is very important. Perhaps you've heard of the, the tale of Ulysses and the sirens as part of Greek mythology, there was this idea, Ulysses had heard about these mythical creatures that inhabited a particular island. And these creatures uh, were particularly attractive to the eyes, and they sang, and their voices were incredibly alluring. And as sailors would sail their ships close enough to the island, unintentionally even, they would hear the sound of the voices and begin to see these creatures singing and be drawn in, be allured towards the shore. And the shore was made up of very jagged rocks. And inevitably, by being allured to the shore, the ships would crash and the sailors would always perish. And so you have these pictures of of these 
these sirens is what they're called, these mythical creatures with dead man's bodies all around them. What Ulysses did was, being warned of this, he, he decided that he wanted to experience the sight and the sounds nonetheless. And so he got his sailors together and took beeswax and plugged up the ears, but only after he had given them instructions. He told his sailors, after their ears were plugged, they were to tie him to the mast of the ship, tie him securely. They were to plug their ears and to row, row very close to the island to allow him to be charmed by these sirens, but not fall into their ultimate desire, which would be his destruction. He instructed them not to let him go as he was tied there, but to sail the boat right by the island, and then when they were far enough away, they could untie him once he was out of the sound of their voices. And supposedly, that's what Ulysses did. As they got closer, the rowers rowed, oblivious to the sound of the voices, while Ulysses, tied there to the mast, made every attempt to break free, but could not, enjoyed as much as he could the sound of the voices until the sailors, the rowers, had rowed the boat far enough beyond their voices. Now, sadly, this is really how many men approach temptation, is it not? They want to be like Ulysses. They want to get as close as they can. They want to enjoy as much as the, uh, of the temptation as they can without ultimately landing in destruction, without reaping the cost of failure. And so either out of carelessness or even out of intentionality, men will orchestrate details of their life so that they can sail close as close as possible to these sirens. Now Solomon recognized this Ulysses-like attitude, and he seeks to cut it off the pass with his own son. As Solomon instructs his son, Solomon points to the reality of a two-path world. This is very common in the book of Proverbs. It's very common in wisdom literature that there are only two paths. There's only two ways. And Solomon taught his son that it's it's, it's very much the case that often men don't even set out to commit sin. They don't wake up in the morning and determine to go directly to the harlot's house. But by choosing the wrong path early on, In carelessness and naivete, they put themselves on the path that brings them right up to the harlot's door. Notice what he says, for example, in Proverbs 7, where he gives this lengthy parable of of looking through the, the lattice at this young, naive man. And he says this in verses 6 to 10 of chapter 7. And notice how he describes this young man. He says, Proverbs 7, 6 to 10, For at the window of my house I looked out through my lattice, and I saw among the naive and discerned among the youths a young man lacking sense, passing through the street near her corner. And he takes the way to her house 
in the twilight, in the evening, in the middle of the night, and in the darkness. And behold, a woman comes to meet him, dressed as a harlot and cunning of heart. Now, as Solomon describes this man, he begins by calling him naive. He doesn't paint the picture that this man goes directly to the harlot's house. Certainly, there are those kinds of men. But Solomon acknowledges the fact that this is a naive man, a man who's lacking sense. He's a simpleton, and through carelessness, he falls into the trap. What's the carelessness? Well, he wanders. He passes through the street and kind of stumbles down her alley. And he does so at what time of the day? Not in the afternoon when everybody is awake and everybody's walking around when there is publicity and accountability that comes from that. No, it's in the twilight, even in the evening, in the middle of the night when everybody's already in their own homes. He's stumbling around on a path that wasn't necessarily intentional other than the fact that he chose this path very naively. Notice, he passes through the street near her corner and in the twilight, in the evening, in the middle of the night, in the darkness. Now, in response, Solomon commands his son not to place himself in moral jeopardy by making foolish choices early on. In life's path. Notice, for example, what he says to his son in Proverbs 5, verses 8 to 9. Notice the descriptions that he uses in this instruction. He says this Keep your way far from her. Keep your way far from her. And do not go near the door of your house. Or you will give your vigor to others and your years to the cruel one. Notice these spatial descriptions that Solomon uses. He tells his son, you are to remain far from her. Don't be like Ulysses. Don't think that you can somehow protect yourself enough so that you can come right up to her door. In fact, as Solomon implies from this, the closer you go to the source, the more dangerous it becomes for you. The stronger the temptation and the more difficult it is for you to escape without paying a penalty. In other words, Solomon says this, don't play with fire. Keep your distance. He says the same thing in Proverbs 7 verse 25. He said, do not let your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. He uses the verb there, stray. He doesn't say, don't go right directly to her to to imply intentionality. No, by the verb stray, he's saying, don't wander around. Don't linger. Don't meander in the area where she is. Don't be careless in choosing your path at the beginning. You make choices. And understand this, men. You make choices that begin every single day at the very start that choose the path. Now certainly, by God's grace, if we've chosen the wrong path in the morning, we can escape. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. God will always make a way of escape. 
But nonetheless, as Solomon instructs his son, and as he instructs us, he wants us to understand that there, is, there are paths that we choose that set us on a course. And we make these decisions at the earliest moment of the day when we arise, and you know this to be true, that how you begin your days often sets the trajectory for the rest of the day. And Solomon's instruction is choose the path that goes far away from this temptation. It's often been noted, as Newhouser states, that those who do fall into morality, into immorality, usually do not fall far. Think of that. Those who, who actually do crash and burn, in the end, it's, it's usually not a, a, a big fall. What is he saying by that? He is saying that up until that crashing and burning, there have been a series of choices that have led the man ever so closer to the point of no return. One decision after another, reaching forks in the road along the way, choosing carelessly the road, the path that goes ever so much closer to the temptation itself. And like I said, you may never intend as you wake up in the morning to go to the harlot's home, but it's those little choices at those forks in the road that eventually lead you closer and closer and closer to the source of temptation itself. Consequently, in our fight for purity, we must take conscious and early actions to ensure adequate distance is maintained between ourselves and whatever is a source of temptation. These sources of temptation may be different for different men. You know what they are. But Solomon's instruction when he says, do not go near her door, when he commands us to maintain great distance, it means that we must we must choose the right paths that will keep us going away from the temptation rather than drawing near to it. And I want to raise just two issues here, two important avenues through which sexual temptation draws near to us or we draw near to it. So the question is, you know, if, if we're to choose the right paths... How do we do that? Now, there's a lot of practical things that we can say, and I'll mention a few in just a few moments, but I want you to take note of two things in particular, two ways, two venues through which we may choose paths that draw us too near to the source of temptation. These are the two, these are the two avenues. Number one, availability. And number two, opportunity. Number one, availability, the means. What do I mean by that? It's the instruments that you have in your hand. It's the internet. It's the cell phone. That having these kinds of means may very well be the thing that draws you close to the harlot's house. And so we have to ask, what, are, what, are the, the, what is the, the means? And are those things available to me? Now, perhaps a phone that you have is an old phone. It's certainly doesn't show any pictures, it's not a problem to you. But perhaps you have one of those smartphones, 
And it is a problem to you. You have to recognize that the moment you reach out for that phone at the beginning of the day to put it in your pocket or to take it with you into privacy somewhere, you are drawing near to the harlot's house because you already know that that phone contains the entryway. And so you have the availability in your pocket or in your hand. It's the means. Or perhaps it's the second one. It's time. Temptation really works on these two things, particularly sexual temptation. Availability and opportunity, means and time. So it could be the TV is a part of the means. It, it could be the computer screen, the phone, that's part of the means. And if those things are available, you have to realize if you're weak in those areas, the more you keep those things close to you, the more you are drawing near to the harlot's house. The other one is, is, is opportunity, it's time. When you allow free time, private time in your day where no one is watching, where you're in the privacy of some closed room and you have nothing to do. That is drawing near to the harlot's home. You know that. So you have the availability, you have the cell phone, and you have the opportunity, you have the time. No one is there with you. No one's demanding anything from you. You have free time. Having a commitment to purity says we've got to deal with these things. We've got to deal with the availability issue and the opportunity issue. We've got to deal with the means by which we draw near to the harlot's home, and we've got to deal with the issue of time, the opportunities we have to draw near to the harlot's home. Now, I want to acknowledge this, that when we talk about maintaining distance and, and dealing with these things in a proper manner— in other words, making things unavailable and giving certain things no opportunity, dealing with both means and time, and I'll get to that in just a moment. Certainly, we cannot think that the whole struggle against sexual temptation and the whole struggle for holiness is wrapped up just in these things, these radical measures that you may use to make sure you don't have free time and to make sure you don't have access to the internet. Certainly, we cannot confuse the whole battle just with keeping away from those things. Keeping away from such sources is really only the absence of sin. It's, it doesn't necessarily mean there's the presence of God-pleasing obedience. It, it merely takes away the opportunity, but it doesn't necessarily change our hearts. Moreover, Satan, uh, Solomon himself warns not only of the temptation to these, these explicit kinds of sin, but he also warns his son to the kinds of sin that can take place in the mind, the non-physical ones. He says, for example, in Proverbs 6, verse 25, do not desire her beauty in your heart. So you may not have a cell phone, any internet, any TV whatsoever. Don't think that you've won the battle. You may not have any time. You may be working 60 hours a week, have all kinds of family responsibilities, be remodeling a house and so on, and think, well, I've got this taken care of. Well, that helps but don't think that that's the only solution because these sins can be committed very easily without any external device. They can be committed even in the privacy of your own secret thoughts and they can be committed even as you are doing other responsibilities. 
One may do well in keeping away from pornography and fornication by maintaining distance from these external expressions, but at the same time be woefully guilty of sexual sin through illicit thoughts. And so we can be like the Pharisees who took the seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery, and interpret that to mean the actual explicit commission of adultery. And Jesus says, you didn't interpret that right. For any man who lusts after a woman in his own heart is guilty of adultery. So we have to recognize that these radical means are not the only part of fighting against temptation. Getting rid of these This availability and this opportunity is not the only means, but it is an important step. There is a place for this kind of concrete and even radical measure. Even Jesus taught this. He says in Matthew 5, 29 to 30, he says, If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Now Jesus is speaking in hyperbole here. He's not calling for self-mutilation. But as he gives this hyperbole, he does want us to recognize that there are needs for radical steps. And you may be in that position right now. You may be caught in this pattern of of regular sexual sin. And you need to heed the words of Solomon, and you need to heed the words of Jesus, and you need to take those radical steps, whatever they may be. But if you're caught in this sexual sin, and you, you say that you hate it, and yet you will not take these radical steps then know this, you don't hate it. You don't hate it. Take the radical steps. If you're struggling against sexual temptation, take the radical steps specifically to deal with availability and time, availability and opportunity. I like what Heath Lambert says when he says this about the, the benefit of radical measures. He said this, first, radical Measures give you space in which to grow. Change takes time. Second, employing radical measures gives you an opportunity to produce fruit in keeping with repentance, Matthew 3, verse 8. What Heath Lambert is saying here is that, yes, radical steps, getting rid of the internet, the phone, whatever it may be, that's not all there is to it. And that can even be done by a Pharisee. But understand this, if you're caught In this kind of habitual sin, you need space to get out of it, space to begin to clear your mind. You need this distance from the source of temptation to allow change to impact you and to change your habits. And this radical step can do just that. So what does that mean? It may mean removing the digital or graphic devices in your home, in your hands, going to some flip phone that just shows you the number you're calling. It may mean getting rid of internet at home or installing different kinds of software that 
publicizes to specific people the web pages that you visit. It also means devoting your time to productive endeavors, recognizing that by having free time for someone who is in this habitual, and that's the worst scenario. So fill your time with things that will keep you busy to allow for a, a, a new kind of habit to grow. Notice what C.H. Spurgeon said when he described idle Christians, talking about the problem of free time, idleness, and how it makes us susceptible to temptation. He says this, idle Christians are not tempted of the devil so much as they do tempt the devil to tempt them. Idleness sets the door of the heart ajar and asks Satan to come in. But if we are occupied from morning till night, if Satan shall get in, he must break through the door. Under sovereign grace and next to faith, there is no better shield against temptation than being not so slothful in business, but fervent in spirit serving the Lord. Fill your time with productive endeavors, Spurgeon says. Be productive in ministry, in fellowship. Be with God's people. Find things to do with your time that are going to benefit your neighbors and most of all your family. Commit to, 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 to more service. Commit to more work. And give that extra income then to the church and you would be surprised at how the Lord will use that to get you off of these habits. As well, speaking of service, Lambert says this. He says, the antidote to this selfishness, the selfishness of sexual sin, involves more than just avoiding pornography. True repentance means replacing pornography with something else, something that honors God and demonstrates love to others. You must begin humbly looking to the interests of others and seeking ways to serve them. So some of these radical steps may mean this new commitment to something that will demand of you heavily, that will take of your time significantly. That's the best thing you can do to, to create some distance from that source of temptation that has been there day after day after day for who knows how long already. We fight for purity by maintaining distance, great distance from temptation sources. Number six, we fight for purity by taking full responsibility for our failures. We fight for purity by taking full responsibility for our failures. The common feeling among men, when you interact with them, or you know this in yourself, the common feeling among men struggling with sexual sin, the common feelings are those of self-pity and blame-shifting. It's the kind of poor me attitude. You hear this from men, you know this in your own flesh, this idea that, you know, life isn't fair. I at least deserve some pleasure. This kind of self-pity leads many men into disaster. The thinking that, well, it's not my fault. This is just the body you gave to me. I have these instincts that I just can't deal with, so they just need expression. Or it's the idea that says, well, God hasn't given me a wife. I want one, but God hasn't given me a wife. Or, God hasn't given me a good wife. This self-pity, this blame-shifting. Or, 
this idea that, well, if she didn't dress like that, then I wouldn't have thought those thoughts. It's her fault. It's her fault. Well, if this is our mindset, we can be assured of loss. But if we are to fight for purity, we must own up to our actions. We must mortify the feeling of self-pity and stop the blame shifting. Notice how Solomon expresses this to his son as he talks about consequences and he gives this hypothetical situation of a lament of an older man who is engaged in a life of of promiscuity and as he gets to the end of his life, he finally realizes that there's no one else to blame. Proverbs 5, 7 to 14, Solomon tells his son this. Solomon says, son, listen, listen, listen to me and do not depart from my words. Keep your way far from her and do not go near to the door of her house or you will give your vigor to others and your years to the cruel one and strangers will be filled with your strength and your hard-earned goods will go to the house of an alien. And you groan at your final end when your flesh and body are consumed. And you say, how I hated instruction. And my heart spurned reproof. I have not listened to the voice of my teachers, nor inclined my ear to my instructions my instructors. I was almost in utter ruin at the midst of the assembly and congregation. What Solomon is saying here is that at the end of the day, you won't have anyone else to blame. You won't be able to point to any other reason for your failures than yourself, not to your wife or lack thereof, not to your neighbor, and certainly not to your maker. At the end of the day, According to Solomon's hypothetical lament, you will realize that there is no one else to blame but yourself. And listen, the sooner you realize that and the sooner you take responsibility for the small sins, the better you will be in the resistance against temptation to larger ones. A similar idea is found in Proverbs 5, verse 20 to 23, Proverbs 5, 20 to 23, for why, my son, should you be exhilarated with an adulteress and embrace the bosom of a foreigner? And that's not speaking of ethnic foreigners, that's speaking of those who are foreign to God's ways. For the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he watches all his paths His, that is the sinner's own iniquities, will capture the wicked and he will be held with the cords of his sin. He will die for lack of instruction and in the greatness of his folly, he will go astray. Solomon says to his son, despite the intensity of the harlot's allure, the Lord holds the man who liaises with her fully accountable. The Lord doesn't say, well, she was dressed a certain way. He doesn't say, well, you didn't have a wife. There is no excuse that's given. When the man stands before the Lord, the Lord unfolds the whole account of the situation and holds him in account of it all. 
The simple truth is this, and the sooner we know this, the sooner we recognize this, the better. There are no excuses. No excuses. You are fully responsible. There is never a time when you do not bear the responsibility for your sin. There is never a time when you can blame it on the harlot. Now, she must answer before her own judge. But you bear your sins. You answer for them. You must not, and you never must find some other reason. The sooner you come to that realization and take personal responsibility, the stronger you will be in the fight for purity. Number seven, we fight for purity by delighting in marriage's provision for intimacy. You know, we've been talking a lot about the dangers of sexual temptation, and it can lead to this idea that that the, that aspect which God has created in us is just inherently evil. But that is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that we are to delight in the provision for the expression of these emotions and feelings, but only in God's or according to God's plan. Now, what's interesting to note is this. Today, here in North America, the statistic is that one in five millennials, that is one in five young adults born after 1980 are married, one in five. That is half the number of the previous generation, the generation before the millennials. I don't even, I lost track of what you call them. The the generation that preceded the millennials at any given age are twice as likely to be married. But millennials are twice less likely to be married as the previous generation. And that, and, and that postponement of marriage is leading to all kinds of sexual temptation and failure. God has created marriage as the crowning achievement of his creation. It was the very last thing that God created on day six. And when he created that, when he created Eve for Adam and said, you are now one flesh, he then said, this is all very good. But what we have today is an increasing number of men who are postponing marriage for less than noble reasons. And that postponement of marriage is opening the door to all kinds of sexual deviancy. There is a direct correlation. Rather than making oneself marriable as soon as possible and trusting in God's providence to bring that woman, more and more men are not marriable, are putting it off to get a career, make lots of money, experience the world, go traveling, love freedom, and then later on deciding to settle down, but in the meantime, committing all kinds of fornication. That is not the way it is supposed to be. As Moses writes in Genesis 2, 24 to 25, the man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Ecclesiastes 9, verse 9 says, Enjoy life with the woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting life, which he has given to you under the sun. 
For this is your reward in life and in your toil in which you have labored under the sun. What's Solomon saying? That you know what? In a pure marriage, even outside of the ideal garden of Eden, even in a cursed world, there is joy and pleasure that can be experienced that God has created and allowed for us, even in this broken world, to be experienced in the relationship of marriage. Hebrews 13 verse 4 says, Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled, for fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Young men, some of you do not hold marriage in high regard. You hold careers in high regard. You hold making money in high regard. You hold freedom and liberty in high regard. You do not hold marriage in high regard. And as a result, you put yourself right along the path of temptation. God has created men to get married. Now, do all men need to? No. Jesus recognized that. Paul recognized that. And I'll talk more about that in just a moment. But some of you young men are doing it to yourselves by postponing what is to be held in high regard and what should be priority number one in adulthood. Finding a woman of God to marry and then enjoy life together with under the sun. Now notice how Solomon communicates this in Proverbs. In chapter 5, we have this interesting, this interesting approach. You have on the one hand... Solomon talk about putting off, and then on the other hand, putting on. Notice what he says to put off. He says, now then, my sons, listen to me, and do not depart from my words. Keep your way far from her, the harlot, and do not go near the door of her house, and so on and so forth. All these negatives, don't do this. Don't go near there. Don't engage in this. And then, after that, he transitions to the next section. Not only are you to Put off these things. Not only are you to mortify these tendencies, but then he says, this is what you're to put on. This is what you are to make alive. He says this in verses 15 to 19. Drink water from your own cistern and fresh water from your own well. Should your springs be dispersed abroad and streams of water in the streets, let them be yours alone and not For strangers with you, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. You see, sexual intimacy is not something that is inherently evil. God has created it as part of his good creation. And it can be enjoyed in fullness. It can be enjoyed with with great delight. But only within this very carefully planned and designed institution called marriage. And that institution of marriage is intended in part to keep us pure. It is intended for us to to be who God has created us to be and to, to exercise all of those desires, but within the proper parameters and to provide that defense against temptation One commentator says this, the best defense against the wiles of the strange woman is a vital relationship with one's proper sexual partner, the wife. Another writer says this, physical intimacy, quote, is like fire. In the fireplace, it keeps us warm. Outside the fireplace, it burns the house down. 
Proverbs 5 is saying, keep the fire in the marital fireplace and stoke that fire as hot as you can. There are only two options for you as men in God's plan. Two options for the unmarried. Number one, live in contentment in chaste singleness. That is not a negative thing. Jesus recognized it as a gift. Paul recognized it as a benefit to ministry. That can be done. God gives you the grace to obey. After all, this is God's will. 1 Thessalonians 4.3, this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that you abstain from fornication. That's clear. Chastity and singleness is the requirement. The only other option is to get married. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, 9, if you don't have self-control, get married, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. And so the challenge is this. If you burn, get serious about becoming marryable. Some men just think that the, God's just going to throw a woman at him and he just needs to catch her. But get serious with your life. Make yourself marryable by God's grace. Stop wasting your life on video games. That is not attractive. Stop spending so much time on social media. Get a job. Show yourself responsible. Get into theology and doctrine. Memorize the Bible. Develop a healthy prayer life. Stop thinking that you're Mr. America and the only woman that will do for you is Miss America. Stop messing with girls' hearts. Realize that you may be the leader for her. That God is the one who can use you to sanctify her, as Ephesians 5 says. Realize that the greatest demands must be put on you to be a marriable man in the Lord. And stop thinking that you deserve the very, 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 very best. Finally, number eight, we fight for purity by taking responsibility to pass it on to our children. We fight for purity by taking responsibility to pass it on to our children. One commentator notes this, each of the three discourses, the long ones about adultery, chapter 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7, comes from the lips of a father to his beloved son. This reminds us of the duty of parents to teach their children about the sexual facts of life. Especially in our day where the government is demanding the ability to interfere with parents' responsibility. When the government is demanding to propagate its view of sexuality, parents must be very involved in training children the way they should go. This is so important. And men, you can't also, you can't just leave it for your, your young boys, your sons, just to figure it out on their own, to lean on their own ways. Rather, Solomon's example here instructs us that we must take responsibility to pass it on to our children, that that's the way that 
we perpetuate the fight for purity by being the ones to instill it in our own children and to walk with them along life's path. I could go into that more, but our time is up. I do want to quickly walk through these one more time. We fight for purity by keeping our ears attentive to instruction, by acknowledging the power of temptation, by contemplating the hideousness of sin, by remembering the consequences of failure, by maintaining our distance from temptation sources, by taking full responsibilities, full responsibility for our failures, or delighting in marriage's provision for intimacy and for passing on wisdom to our children. Now, having said all of that, some of you may be under a tremendous load of guilt. Some of you may have recognized the great cost that has come from your folly, from your sin. Some of you may be thinking there is no hope, that it's all over. You've committed atrocious sins. You're guilty. The shame is overwhelming. And when you hear these things, you just go, there's, there's nothing I can do It's all ruined. Well, I would be remiss if I didn't give you words of hope. There is hope. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ is greater than any sin you could commit. There is hope. There is forgiveness that is offered. There is the opportunity for new life. There is grace that can transform you and give you joy even in these years of your life. We sang that song at the very beginning that is so filled with the the gospel. Let me read it again. The, the, The lyrics, not in me. No list of sins I have not done. No list of virtues I pursue. No list of those I am not like can earn myself a place with you. Oh God, be merciful to me. I am a sinner through and through. My only hope of righteousness is not in me, but only you. No humble dress, no fervent prayer, no lifted hands, no tearful song, no recitation of the truth can justify a single wrong. My righteousness is Jesus' life. My debt was paid by Jesus' death. My weary load was borne by him, and he alone can give me rest. No separation from the world, no work I do, no gift I give can cleanse my conscience, cleanse my hands. I cannot cause my soul to live. But Jesus died and rose again. The power of death is overthrown. My God is merciful to me and merciful in Christ alone. If you flee to Christ, I guarantee you there is plenty of mercy. Flee to him.